to In the Word with Pastor Don Haskins, where we open up the Bible to see what God's Word says and how it might apply to our lives. Our prayer is that you allow Jesus to change you from the inside out. And now, today's lesson. Corinthians chapter 10. Let's read the first 13 verses, and we are going to get through with these first the 13 verses of chapter 10 today. I'm only going to focus on 12 and 13, but for context purposes, we will read all 13 verses. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, beginning in verse 1, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, and all ate or all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor murmur as some of them also murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition on whom the end of the ages have come. Now, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. And so, Father, we come before you, and we thank you, Lord, for this day. We pray that you would take this passage, and that you would teach us, you would... Show us, Lord, what it is that you want to teach every single one of us. It's the awesome thing about how you are, Lord. We can all be in and listen to the same exact message, and yet we can get such a different word from you that speaks specifically to us. And so, Lord, I I pray that even in the same message that we will all hear, that, Lord, you will speak to each individual listening to this, specifically and individually. Minister to them, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Minister to me. Speak through me, Lord. We didn't come here to see or hear me. We didn't come here to see a guy standing behind a pulpit and opening up his mouth and just blabbering a bunch of words. God, we really did come here to to sit at your feet and and to say, Lord, what is it that you want to say to us? It just so happens to be that that guy's the mouth today and so I'm going to hear through him what it is that you want to speak to me on. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anything that comes from my mouth today that is not of you, Lord, that you would wipe it away from the hearers and the memory of anyone who hears these words. But Lord, the things that are from you, I pray, Lord, that you sink them deep in the depths of our soul, Lord, that you would build the foundation in the, the very depth of our soul in order to 
build up a long and lasting structure that would be pleasing to you. This vessel that you call our bodies, our minds, our souls, our spirits. Lord, may we individually please you and bless you as we learn from you this day. Grow us up, Lord. Mature us at this time. Speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we have gone through 1 Corinthians chapters 9 and 10, uh, we see that, you know, Corinth, going back in time, when we began 1 Corinthians, you remember I spoke about how Corinth was very, very similar to the country that we're living in right now, to the nation and the days that we're living in right now, the days and the ages that we're living in. Um, there was a lot of, of uh, things that, that were, to the rest of the world, not uh, acceptable, not in their own communities. Uh, Corinth was much like the Vegas. We think of Vegas, uh, you remember how we talk about that, you know, that what goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas, you know. And, and we, we kind of say that with tongue in cheek. Uh, hopefully none of us do. But that is the saying. And the mindset is, listen, you're going to go to Vegas and you're going to do things that you would not normally do in your own society, in your own, you know, culture, in your own, you know, sphere of friends, around your family, around your friends, around your coworkers. You're going to go and you're going to do something different. You're going to be, you know, more, you know, debaucherous. You're going to be much looser with your lifestyle and, and you're going to do a lot of things that you would never even dream about doing in front of anyone that you care about. And, and so we understand that about Vegas. And that was what Corinth was. And today we think of Vegas, and, and that phrase doesn't really mean a whole lot anymore, does it? You know, what goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, it's actually kind of just, hey, what goes on in my life really just stays with me. It doesn't matter to anybody else. This is who I am, and this is what I do. And, and everybody has become very bold in sin. Something that didn't used to be, uh, accepted, we have accepted much of what Vegas had legislated and allowed into that city. Uh, now it has become widespread in our nation. Well, this was the, the city that, that back in this day, this is the city of Vegas, if you will, Corinth. You know, they were very debaucherous. They were very well learned. And so if there were intellectuals from that area, they go, hey, you know, if you think like a Corinthian, if you, if you, if you speak like a Corinthian, you're very persuasive with words. You're very smart. You're very erudite. But if you live like a Corinthian, that meant something completely different. You didn't want that, you know, yourself to be associated with that back in that day. And you remember, as I said, Rome was basically the power of the earth at the time. They were the power of the earth. And Corinth was their little hangout. It was their little Vegas spot, you know, their vacation spot that they would go to. And so they tolerated much of what went on in, you know, lost Corinth. And you remember there was a temple there that had a thousand prostitutes that that you know you go and you you pay you know to the to the temple and you would have 
you know, whatever you wanted to do sexually. And so it was just, but it was, it was okay in Corinth because you're in Corinth. And Rome was cool with that. Rome was a pretty debaucherous place, but there were certain things that even Rome wouldn't do. But that's who Corinth was. And, and I know that we don't necessarily have temples today that have a thousand prostitutes, but, you know, fidelity in marriage and fidelity between a man and a woman have, have really taken a major back seat in our country, in our, in our society. And so when we look at this and we, we look at Corinth, we go, wow, I can kind of identify with, with what's going on back in Corinth. The reason I say all of this is because of this. There were people that became Christians, that this is their lifestyle that they grew up in, and then they became Christians. And they were kind of going, well, well, okay, this is what I have grown accustomed to. This is what I learned. This is who it is that I was. Now that I'm a Christian, can I continue on in the same manner of lifestyle that I grew up in? Can you imagine growing up in Vegas and then becoming a Christian? And, and you know, you frequenting and, and exercising all of the liberties that you had, you know, into your 20s and 30s. And then all of a sudden you accept Christ into your heart and you go, okay, now what happens with this? What, what ends up going on? What, what do I, is there something I have to change? Is there something, what does the Lord think about my life? And we can also look at that in our own individual lives, whether or not you live in Vegas or not. But this is the the people, this is who Paul is addressing. They became very confident in their walk with the Lord. They understood that there was grace to the Lord, but they understood they they had a little bit of a skewed view of what grace was. I've heard it said before, which I agree with grace is for falling grace is not for jumping grace is there the lord's grace is there so that when you fall he's there to catch you he's there to restore you he's there to forgive you he's there to renew you grace is not there he did not sit that safety net there so that you can stand on the on the ledge of debauchery and jump off every single day in rep- repetitive you know uh, motions and just constant you know making it making it a habit and living in that manner of life. That's not what grace is for. Grace isn't, hey, yeah, go ahead and, you know, now that you've said a prayer, and there's a lot of people that will think that. But I said a prayer that a pastor said, so I am saved. But here's the thing. If your life has never changed from the time that you said that prayer to the time where you are here today, and, and, and you look at it and you go, oh, wait a minute. I said this prayer, and this prayer guarantees me, according to what that pastor said, eternity. I'm going to live my life for me the rest of my life and not, not really even give any regard to the Lord. But in the end, when, when it becomes crunch time, when my life is required of me, when I die, because I know everybody dies, the statistics are staggering in that aspect. Ten out of ten people die. And, and so here's the thing. When I die, well, then I'll get serious about the Lord. But you know what? That's not... Can you imagine me getting married that way? Can you imagine if, if myself and my wife, we got married on the day that we got married in Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, we covenanted ourselves to one another? I do. I do. And, and that was the day when we walked out, we had a wonderful day. But then after that, we never really associated with one another. I didn't come home. She wouldn't come home. We lived in separate places. 
Are you married to her? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Are you faithful to her? <laughs> no. But she's cool. She's cool with it. I just have to say, hey, I'm sorry, honey. I'm sorry I was unfaithful with 40 women. And she's good with it. See, it doesn't work in any other aspect of our life. And yet there's a lot of people that live their Christian life in that same manner. I, I said I do to the Lord at a crusade or I said I do to the Lord at a church or, or maybe in a friend's backyard or whatever. I said I do. And so that gives me, you know, the security that, hey, I'm there with him. I'm going to be in heaven. But yet there's nothing else in all of life that would identify with that kind of a relationship, saying I do, and then you just being safe. It's not an insurance policy. It's not a, a fire insurance policy, you know, of hell. Hey, I'm going to say I do to the Lord, and then I'm going to live my life the way that I want. And now, at the time, maybe 50 years from now, I'm gonna, my life is going to be required of me. I'm going to die. I'm going to flip out that insurance policy that I, that I bought on that crusade day where I said I do to the Lord. And this is going to have a get-out-of-jail-free card. And I, I think that that's where Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 7. He says, many will come to me that day and they'll say, Lord, Lord, did I, did I not go to church? Did I not? Say I do at one time? Did I not do these things in your name? Didn't I prophesy? Didn't I say these things? Didn't I I even cast out demons in your name? And Jesus says, And I will declare to them in that day, Depart from me, I never knew you. You want to know the most horrific words that anyone can ever hear? It's those. Can you imagine standing before the King of Glory and have him say, Depart from me, I never knew you? Because on the day that you or I stand before the Lord and we say, and and we're standing before the Lord visibly and physically or spiritually, we're standing before Him and our time is up. We have a, we're answering for our life right now. We're answering for the decisions. We're answering for, for our life at this moment. Our life is required of us and we're standing before the Lord. And to have Him say, depart from me, I never knew you, There are many people that play this game thinking, well, that there's another chance. There's a false doctrine out there that that Catholics will will embrace and they'll say, well, there's purgatory. And so he'll send you off to purgatory, but now your friends can pray you back into heaven. There's nothing further from the truth. Paul says, listen, you know... It is appointed unto man once to die. And then the judgment. It's, it's not. It's not. It's appointed unto man once to die and then purgatory. And hopefully and prayerfully, your friends will be spiritual enough to pray you out of that place of torment and give you back into heaven. There's, no, there's nothing in Scripture that would support that. Those are extra biblical writings. But they're things that really appeal to us, don't they? You know, Bible tells us in John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, he says, The witness is this. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things are written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. There's there's an aspect in Scripture that says you can know that you're going to go to heaven. You can know beyond the shadow of a doubt. But again, I appeal to you as common sense thinkers 
This is not appealing to you to say I do and then walk away at the altar of the covenant that you've made between you and God through Jesus. And, and that you're going to go and live your life any way you want and you're not going to regard the Lord in the midst of that. And because here's the thing. Are you confident enough to think that, well, that pastor said, because I said it, I'm going to be in heaven. Are you going to bank your eternity on what a pastor said or are you going to bank your eternity upon what the Word of God says? You know, Paul talks about it in Galatians chapter 5, doesn't he? Here's what he says. Listen to what he says. So Galatians chapter 5. He says this. The works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so here you have Pastor Paul saying that if this is your lifestyle, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But wait a minute. The pastor in that small little Baptist church that I went to growing up said that I would go to heaven. So I'm going to bank my word on the small little pastor in, you know, Middleton, Texas, you know, that said, I think that that's actually a place, isn't it? That's just kind of the thought that came to my head. But sorry if you're from Middleton. Last week I got ridiculed because I was trashing down on Philadelphia people. Sorry, Patty. But, uh, uh, you're going to bank your eternal security based upon a pastor that, that says, well, this is what I see. Well, Paul says, no, this is it. that's not right. That's not right. You see, because I think that we need to really consider ourselves. And I don't even mean to say I think, because I know. Our relationship with the Lord is such that when we covenant ourselves together with the Lord, doesn't mean that we're not going to stray, doesn't mean that we're not going to fall, doesn't mean that we're not going to make mistakes. But there's always... A, a relationship that's there. My wife could tell you more than I can tell you of my mistakes and of my failures and of my weaknesses or of my, you know, uh, not living up to a standard at times. And I have to say I'm sorry. And I have to come to her and, and apologize at sometimes. And sometimes I'm a little pig headed and don't do it for a while eventually doing it. And she graciously forgives me. But you know what? We're still married. Because I come home every day and we work it out. We work it out. We, we, we have a relationship. We might not see eye to eye on everything and I might be pig-headed at times and I most of the time am. And, and we might butt heads at times. But at the end of the day, we're married. At the end of the day, we're going to make sure that we're still married and that we're still going to thrive. We're, we're going to make sure that we're going to make this work. You see, because that's relationship. And that's relationship with the Lord. Uh, you might not see that the Lord, I just don't understand why you want me to do this, Lord. And, and you might have some, some issue with the Lord, but as you stay with the Lord and you wrestle this out with the Lord, you're going to find out that you're wrong. I, if you need to learn that lesson yourself... I'm sorry, take it from me. You're going to lose. The Lord's always right. But here's the thing. You might wrestle it out with the Lord, but I applaud you for wrestling it out with the Lord. Don't just go and live on your own and just live your own life without living for the Lord because 
where's the relationship? And, and, and so this is Corinth. Corinth is sitting here going, well, we're saved, right? We grew up in this town. This is how we've always grown. Are you saying God doesn't want us this way? God loves you too much to leave you this way. God loves you so, so much that he doesn't want you to, to, to accept less than what he has for you. And, and so Paul is addressing these things. He's addressing these things to, to, the, to the Corinthians. He's saying, guys, I know that you feel confident that, that grace has interjected, has, has intersected your life. You once were living for the world and now you've accepted Christ into your heart. And now you're struggling on knowing how to balance Christ in my old life. And the idea that Paul talks about in Galatians, he says, listen... I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And so he takes a radical point. He takes a radical statement and a radical illustration to say, you know what? When Christ came into my life, Paul died or Saul died, which is kind of cool. You know, his name was, we all remember his name was Saul, right? His name was Saul. Then he got saved. He started walking with the Lord for a little while. He was still Saul for a little while, but then he changed his name to Paul. Paul literally means little. Little. Paul was at one time a Sanhedrin. Paul was once one of the judges in Israel. Paul was once one of the most well-respected judges in all of Israel. One of the 70 Sanhedrin. That's, that's an accomplishment. That is a, a, an honor to be in that position. And he had a lofty position. And everybody looked up to Saul. The people looked up to Saul. But then, as he was trotting around on his horse, on his high horse, the Lord knocked him off of that high horse, didn't he? On the way to Damascus. And knocked him on the ground and caused blindness to come upon him. And Paul, freaking out, going, Lord, who are you? And he hears this word, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Lord, who are you? I don't even know who you are. Who am I persecuting? I think Paul knew who it was that knocked him off the horse. But I think he just needed to hear Jesus say it. He goes, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Isn't it hard for you to kick against the goats? Saul, isn't it hard for you to do what you're doing? Because in that putting people in prison for my name's sake, beating husbands and families even to death, having them stoned to death. You think that that's from me? You think you're, you're pleasing me? And I think that there was something in Paul that he struggled with that. Uh, Jeremy's reading a book that, that reminded me, he, he, I don't know how far you've gotten along in that book, but... Um, He's reading a book called, I think it's called The Life of Paul by an author's name is John Pollock. Huh? The Apostle. That's right, The Apostle. It's a great book. I, I love the book because it really put flesh on Paul. It put, puts a lot of, of, of uh, his, his uh, a, a mindset that would have been on a person like Paul in the position that Saul was in before he became a Christian. And so it, it's, it's really a, a fascinating work. I love the book. I actually taught, that was one of my textbooks in, when I taught out at the Bible college. And so 
he talks about Paul as Saul and then Paul as Paul. He talks about pre-Christ and post-Christ. And there was a radical change. Paul says, who I used to be, I died to. It's no longer about me anymore. It's about Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's no longer Paul who lives. But it's Christ who now lives in me. And so now the life that I now live, I live by faith in the one who saved me. And so here's the thing. He's now going to walk with Jesus. He's going to walk with the Lord. The life that he now lives, the decisions that he now makes, are going to be made first running it past the desk of Christ. And so there's relationship. When I went to the altar with my wife, I brought myself up singular. She brought herself up singular. And if you've ever been to a wedding, which most of us have, probably all of us have, you remember, you know, that in many weddings they have the the unity candle. You know, the two moms or whoever it is go up and and light the two individual candles. And in the midst of the ceremony, the pastor will have them go up in the midst of the ceremony and the, the... you know, groom is going to, to pick up his candle and the bride is going to pick up her candle and they're going to put the two flames together signifying this is my life and as a husband or as a groom and this is my life as the bride. We're putting the two flames together which become one flame and then we lay it down upon the unity candle and light one flame. We pick our individual flames back up and blow them out signifying it's no longer about me Gary used to say, Gary here, Gary, he, he gave me a, 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 a message a long time ago. It's no longer about you or me. It's now about we. And, and the, what a great statement. It's no longer about you or me. It's about we. And so here's the idea. Paul says, when I come to Christ, it stopped being about me. It started to be about we. How is it that you want to work through my life? You see, that's what a Christian is. And that's what Paul's trying to get to the Corinthians. He's saying a relationship has to do with binding yourself together with the Lord. And these guys, they understood Paul and loved the message of Paul talking about grace. Don't we all? We love grace. And rightly so, we should. Because grace is how we stand. It's not the goodness that I've ever done that ever prompted God to ever Die for me on the cross through his son. I didn't prompt the Lord to come and die for me. He did it out of the volition of his own heart. He did it out of his desire to see me saved. His desire to see me go to heaven. His desire to love me and to afford me an opportunity to receive the gift of eternal life. Now here's the thing. He loves me. He gave me life. Because he did it. Not because I did it, but because he did it. You know the verse. It's Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, it says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of, or not as a result of worse, lest anyone should boast. Did you catch that? It's by grace that you have been saved. Grace. The definition of grace is God's unmerited favor toward the infinitely ill-deserving. You, I, I don't care if you are a saint like Mother Teresa that just gives your whole life for other people. 
You are so infinitely ill-deserving of God's grace. And yet He gives it to you anyways. He loves you anyways. You're a sinner. Your sin separates you from God. And so here's the thing. It's God's grace that comes in. And that not of yourselves. It's not a result of your works, lest anyone would boast in heaven. There's nobody going to be in heaven and going, Hey, those of you, you know... Uh, youngsters that have been a part of the, the, the youth program that Alex and Jeremy have been teaching. You, you've seen this illustration, haven't you? There's not going to be anybody in heaven going, Hey, I built that stained glass window on that church, got me into heaven. You know, oh, I paid for it. I paid for it, so, you know, I put forth the money for that, so therefore I'm supposed to be in heaven right now, too. It, nobody is going to boast that they're in heaven because of something that they monetarily did that they did other than said I came as an infinitely ill-deserving person and I cast myself before an all-loving God and I cast myself before him I gave him my rags and he gave me his robes of righteousness I gave him my life and said Lord I have nothing to offer you except what I have here's me here's 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 my life take it do with it as you will and it's in that that the Lord received you and took you and and, and, and washed you clean and, and cast your sin as far as east is from the west and placed upon you not your old dirty rags. He didn't put your old dirty rags in the washing machine, wash them up and get them nice and clean and put them back on you. He took them away. He washed them away. He, he wiped them out of, of, of your picture. He placed his own robe of righteousness upon you and therein is how he sees you from this day forward. Because you entered into a relationship with him. And when you slip and when you fall, you run back to him and you say, Lord, I blew it. And he goes, hey, we're going to work this out. I died for that sin. Lord, I'm sorry. I, I don't want to go down these roads. You see, that's relationship. It's not blatant going, hey, yeah, ah, sin, I'm doing it. No problem. God, you're good. You're good with it because I said the prayer. You got that? I said the prayer. That pastor said I'm supposed to go to heaven. You're going to be a liar if I don't get there. No, there's so many warnings in Scripture that says that's not how you get to heaven. It's relationship. Not religion, it's relationship. It's just a life given to the Lord. And that's what Paul's trying to get to the Corinthians. He's going, so here's the thing. You understand grace, that it's not by your merited favor that God would ever give you anything. No, you're infinitely ill-deserving, Corinthians. God's grace has been poured out upon you, not so that you can continue in sin, but so that you can be freed from sin. This is who you used to be. Let's be something different. Oh, I'm so good with this. I'm all right. I'm okay with, with, with this part of my life. This is what Paul's saying here in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at it real quick. He says this. He says, you might think that you're strong. You might think that you're bold. You might think that you're confident. He says, but verse 12 Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Paul has just talked about the children of Israel in the wilderness. For, for 40 years, they disobeyed the Lord and they just t- turned their back on the Lord. They had him as God, but they didn't treat him as God. They didn't treat him in relationship. They came to him because he said, I have to. I have to come to God. I don't trust him. But, but here's the thing. I, I want food that pleasures my stomach... I want sexual relationship that that satisfies my deep desires. And and I want want comfort. 
that satisfies me. And that's what they were struggling with in the wilderness. This is what I want. And Paul says, don't you remember that this is what happened? And in the midst of all of that, they saw God's handiwork. They saw the pillar of cloud by day, or the, the, the cloud by day as it, it kept the heat of the desert off of them. It was a miracle. They didn't see that cloud anywhere else. This cloud kept them cool and gave them direction to go. And the fire by night kept them lit up, kept them protected from enemies that would go, I'm not going to go attack that camp. Do you see that God is a part of that camp? It kept them protected for 40 years. Every day they wake up with food on the ground, manna. And they got thirsty. The spiritual rock that followed them, according to what Paul says here in chapter 10, he says the spiritual rock that followed them was Christ. He's the one that gave them the thirst, that the, quenched their thirst. You remember it was John chapter 7, where it talks about Jesus. He says, on that last great day of the feast, Jesus stood upon the steps. It was on the steps where they, they were remembering the water that they had been afforded in Egypt, in the wilderness. It's, it's a, a, a festival and a feast to remember God, memorialize the time that their forefathers, who many years had passed in the wilderness, and the water that God gave them plenches out of the rock. And they had these big vats of water upon the tops of the steps of the temple. And on the last great day of the feast, all of the... Hundreds of thousands of Jews on that last great day of the feast, they'd be there standing before the steps and the priests would tip over the water and the water would come trickling down, pouring down the steps, thereby signifying to the people the plenteousness and how God so graciously provided water for them in this dry and you know, forsaken desert. And this water would come tumbling down these steps and everybody would be deadly quiet as the water is gushing down as to hear the water swish. And the, the noise was broken by one. I don't know if you've heard this story. Many of you have heard it. But Jesus spoke very loud. Jesus spoke very loud. He says, I say to you, he screams it out so everybody can see it. Hundreds of thousands of people, he screams. He's the one voice that's speaking. He says, Come to me, and out of your innermost being, are you thirsty? Come to me, and out of your innermost being will come torrents of living water. You come to me, you drink from me. Jesus was the rock. He was the one that could satisfy the thirst, the deep thirst. The spiritual thirst. Jesus was calling who he, who he was. I was that rock that was with them in the wilderness. And so Paul is reminding these Corinthians going, listen, these people were overconfident in the wilderness. They thought that because they had God around them that God was going to protect them, but they never had relationship with him. It said there in chapter 10, you saw it right there. It says in verse 5, But with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And like I said last week, that's the understatement in the Bible. Because there was only three of that generation that passed, only two that passed into the wilderness, or into the promised land, I'm sorry. 
But Moses, he died outside of the promised land because he staggered at God's promise. He took God at his word and he began to abuse his position. When God told him, you remember, God told him to speak to the rock the second time. He had struck the rock once and out came water. The second time he said, speak to the rock and out will come water to the children of Israel. Have you ever wondered why he did that? Why did he have to strike the rock the first time? And why was it that the second time he'd have to speak to the rock? It was a perfect picture, gang. If Jesus is that spiritual rock, he was stricken once. He was crucified once. He was beaten once for sin. And from this point forward, it's speaking to him. It's coming to him as a living stone. Coming to him and seeking him. And and out of your innermost beings will come forth torrents of living water. You don't have to strike. Christ doesn't have to die on a cross again. He doesn't have to be stricken again. He did it once, once for all. That's it. He doesn't have to go back up on the cross. But Moses, because of his pride, because of his ego, because of his frustration with the people, he took his staff and he struck the rock again. And he goes, shall we make water come out of this rock again? Boom! And he hits the rock and water comes out. And it's like, Moses, what part did you have in taking that water out of the rock in the first place? You had none. You just had to say what it was that God said. God's the one that made the rock, the water come out of the rock. Moses, he missed the promised land because he got frustrated with the people. He began to become too big in his own eyes. But he believed the Lord. Moses can be in heaven. But Joshua and Caleb, only two people that made it in the promised land, they had God everywhere, everywhere they went. And so Paul, he's referencing this. He's saying, guys, I want you to remember, don't take your overconfidence in that this grace that you've experienced, this, this understanding that your sins have been forgiven and, and that you, can continue, you think that you can continue to live in your own way. You're, everything in Corinth measures up exactly with what the children of Israel, when they were in the desert, what they struggled with. This is what you're indulging in. If you think that he is going to keep them out of he's going to keep them out of the promised land, he's going to accept you in, you're sorely mistaken. That's why he says verse 12, for he says in verse 12 of chapter 10, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't let your overconfidence keep you out of heaven. Don't let your overconfidence in a, a, a little pastor from a church saying, hey, you pray this prayer and you'll be good for life. Go ahead and live like hell the rest of your life, but you'll get heaven in the end. That's, not, that's, that's a lie. That's just a flat out lie. Because there's no relationship, you understand? That's religion that he just taught you. Now I'll tell you, hey, here's a prayer you pray. Pray this, believe it. Do you believe it? Yes. Now go and live it. Live it. That's a relationship. As I will with a, with a couple that I marry. Do you, do you take her? Do you take him? Yes, yes. Okay, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Now go and live your life together. The two shall become one. Now go and live together. Don't go and live separate. It's a relationship. It's not, it's not a formality. And so Paul says, listen, I don't want you to become so overconfident in what this grace is that you can continue to live your life the only way, any old way you want. You can't. It's not that way because that's not relationship. I would not hurt my wife deliberately simply because I know that she's going to forgive me. And if I'm not going to do that with my wife, why would I ever come to this understanding that I could actually do that to my Lord? It's not like that. 
Let's, let's just common sense think about this relationship with the Lord. And then Paul goes on. He says, and before I go on, I, you know, a parallel verse to this, you know, therefore let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. You know this verse. Probably backwards you know this verse, but you know this verse. Pride goes before... See, you know it backwards. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We've become pretty programmed to say, hey, pride goes before a fall. Well, it, it, it really is the same message. Pride goes before the destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. A haughty spirit before a fall. You think that you might have in your own life, and I'm now talking to you guys here, do you think that you have strength and power to overcome your own temptations in your life? Do you think that you're good? you think you've got it under control? And I remember my pastor out in California, Greg Laurie, used to use this, and I know I've, I've still heard him hear him say this at times. I don't hear him too much anymore, but he used to say, an unguarded link, an unguarded strength in the chain of your strength, in the chain of who you are, an unguarded strength is oftentimes your weakest link. You might think, hey, I'm really strong in this area, so I'm not going to attend to this area. I'm going to attend to the things that I really am afraid of falling in, and so I'm going to really strengthen these areas, and I'm just going to disregard this area because I've never struggled in that. And the next thing you know, that's the very thing you fall in. I've seen it. I've seen a pastor who's actually written books on the strength of marriage, you know, written you know, books and volumes about you know, a man's, you know, man's role as a husband and a woman's role as a wife and, and the, the strength of a marriage and the strength of this and the strength of that and marriage, marriage and books and books and books and the next thing you know that he falls with a woman and loses his ministry that he had for some 25 years and he just, he lost it all. Because what was a strength of his, he left it unguarded because, well, I'm pretty strong in this because look at the books I write. Look at what I did. This is something that I don't struggle with. And then he fell. And it just destroyed his whole ministry. And to this day, I mean, that was, you know, 20 some odd years ago. And to this day, the stigma still follows him. It destroyed him. An unguarded strength is oftentimes your weakest link in your armor. It's the weakest area of your armor. So be careful. Don't become overconfident. That's what Paul's saying. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you except as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The word temptation there is a word pyrosmos, pyrosmos in the Greek. Uh, it, 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 it speaks of when God is the agent, uh, temptation if you will, pyrosmos is for the purpose of proving someone, never th- for the purpose of causing him to fall. If God ever uses a situation in your life to prove you, not tempt you, and we'll see that here in a second, James chapter 1, it says this. I'll just say it real quick because I'm not going to go back to it. James chapter 1, 
Let no one say, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he or she is drawn away by his own desires and is enticed. And then when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, it brings forth death. Therefore, don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Here's the thing. When you're tempted, you're not tempted by God. There is a testing that God will allow you to go through to prove what, how far you've grown. To encourage you to show you just how far you've grown. It's not to drag you down. It's not going to put you... You know, God's not going to... If you struggle with infidelity... God's not going to put you, you know, in a uh, in an elevator maybe with, you know, some woman who comes in looking like a hooker and and say, hey, you know, and, and give you, you know, give you a proposition in there and you're out on a business trip. That's not God doing that to prove to you, hey, look how far you've grown. No, he's not going to put you in those positions. That's the devil doing it to you. And so this is what it is. It's when God is the agent, this word that is, is uh, uh, defined as temptation, when God is the agent, it's only for the purpose of proving someone and never for the purpose of causing him to fall. If it is the devil who is the one who tempts, then it is for the purpose of causing one to fall. This is a state or trial or a state of trial in which God brings his people through adversity and affliction in order to encourage and prove their faith and confidence in him. So if God is the agent, it's to prove to you, look at how far you've come. Look at what you've done. My son just had his very first football game at, at, at Bradenton Christian the other day. And, and it gives you the opportunity, all this training that you're doing, all through the summer, all through the, the, the spring, all through the school year that you're preparing for this very first game, you get out there and you're proving. And the coach isn't putting you in a position to fail. He's putting you in a position to say, look, look how far you've come. Look how far you've come. He's not there putting you in a position to make you fail and say, see, what kind of a worthless person are you? Are you telling me you spent all this time and this is what you produce? What a sad state you are in. No, a coach is there to, to, to say, okay, this is how far you've come. There's some things we can work on, right? Let's work on these things. Be encouraged. Don't give up because you know what? You're going to do this. You're going to do this. This is the Lord. That's how the Lord will use this. But no temptation has ever overtaken you such as is common to man. What it means, except such as is common to man, literally that means that which is human. That which will come upon you, that which will come upon me, that which will come upon any other human being in life. David Guzik, he, he, he writes, God has promised. It says, but God, such as such is, such is, is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. Guzik says, you know, God has promised to supervise. I love this statement, so I wrote it down. God has promised to supervise all temptation which comes at us through the world, the flesh, or the devil. He promises to limit it according to our capability to endure it. 
according to our capacity as we rely on Him and not relying on ourselves. Think about it for a minute. Think about it. Given the opportunity, what do you think Satan would do to you if he didn't have to pass things by God before he came at you? Do you think that he'd treat you like Job and try to destroy everything in your life? What do you think he would have done to Job if God said, you can touch him, you can touch everything that he has, but do not touch the man's soul. Don't touch the man's person. When he said, okay, you can touch the man's person, but don't touch his soul. What did he do? What did Satan do? Any opportunity he had. Let's give this guy sores, boils on his body. Satan. That's Satan. Think about this. God was proving Job. And that's a hard lesson to, to teach, isn't it? That God allowed all of that to happen to Job. But I'm confident that that kind of a lesson was there for you and I to say, do you really need to have to go through this in order for you to really look at at the Lord and see the Lord? I don't know that there's a lot of us that would have endured what Job did and still be with the Lord. But there are those out there that would. Job is a hero in the faith, man. Even when his wife says, don't you see everything that's happened to you, sweetheart? Honey, let me give you a little counsel, the wife said. Why don't you just curse God and die? Where did that come from? (laughs) That's a strong marriage, isn't it? Honey, really? Do you mean? Do you really mean that? You want me to turn around and curse God so that he'll kill me? No, I'm not going to do that. Though the Lord slay me, Job said to his wife, I will not deny him. What 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 a hero of the faith. Though the Lord slay me, yet I will not deny him. I'm not going to do that. Here's the thing. That that God said, go ahead, Satan, Lucifer, go ahead. But don't touch this part. Don't touch that. And you know what he said? Yes, sir, Mr. God. Satan has to listen to the Lord. And so God is that, like I say, I love what Guzik said, God has promised to supervise every temptation that comes your way and my way. Because if... If left unsupervised, Satan would treat you like Job and treat me like Job. He'd ruin our lives. And so think about that the next time you're going through a big trial. It always can be worse. It always could get worse. It always can be even more difficult. And the Lord is there. He's wanting you to reach out to Him. He's wanting you to find Him. He says, uh, you know, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you'll be able to, you may be able to bear it. Not only will God supervise what comes down the pike for you and I as far as temptation, but He will also devise a way of escape from that temptation. Whatever temptations you find in your life, God, is, God has a path out. He always has a way out. He has a path. He has a way. He has an avenue. Now, here comes the most important part of this lesson here, gang, for us. He has devised a way of escape from the temptation. God has. If God has prepared a way of escape from the temptation, guess what? He's the only one that knows the actual steps to take to extricate yourself, myself, ourselves out of that way of danger. 
This means that you do not know the very way based upon your own reasoning, your own conniving, your own devising, your own resources. You don't know the way out. The idea here that Paul's saying is, hey, God has a way of escape. The idea behind what Paul's saying is when you are tempted, when temptation has knocked on your door, your first thing should be, Lord, what should I do? How do I go about this? Lord, where's my way of escape? And sometimes it's as radical as he did with Joseph and Potiphar's wife, right? You remember Potiphar's wife? Joseph must have been a hunk. We don't know much about Potiphar's wife. She could have been drop-dead gorgeous bombshell. Or she might have just been not really, well, like, you know, look, looking. But whatever. She wanted to sleep with Joseph because he was the most powerful man in her husband's uh, household. And she wanted to cheat on her husband. And Joseph said, no way. How can I do this before God and your husband? No, your husband entrusted everything to me. The only thing that he hasn't given me power over is you and him. He's given me power over all of his money, all over his servants, his household, everything that he has, all of his land, everything that he has. The only thing I don't have the power over is you or him. Why would I ever do this against God and you? I can't sin against God that way. I'm not going to do it. One day she sends all the other servants out of the house. You know the story. And she comes to Joseph and she grabs a hold of him and, and she goes, all the servants are out of the house. Joseph, sleep with me right now. And she grabs a hold of him and Joseph's going, no. No, she's going, sleep with me. And Joseph goes, and he doesn't know what to do. What are you going to do? It is my boss's wife. It is my boss's wife. I mean, she's she's telling me I have to. What would you do? Joseph goes, no, I'm not going to do that. You're not going anywhere without, without, you know, sleeping with me. And Joseph goes, you watch. And he wiggles out of the clothes that he was in out of the cloak that he was wearing. And he runs out of the house even naked, which looks pretty guilty, doesn't it? It's, I'm happy that Mr. Haynes, you know, became uh, an inventor of underwear. But here's the thing. You know, they take off this shirt. I still got a black one underneath, okay? You know, so I'm covered. I'm covered, you know? And here's the thing. He runs out naked. And she's so infuriated. She goes, this man, he's, he's one of those Israelites. He came in to mock me because she didn't get her way and he got thrown in prison. You know the story. But here's the thing. His way of escape was fleeing. Was just getting out of there. But it was because of his relationship with the Lord that said, Lord, I'm not going to do and, and live in sin before you. If anybody had a reason to be angry at God, to, to, to go, you know what? My life has been trashed. And you know what? I've been away from my father, my own home, my household, my little brother, Benny, that I love. I haven't been able to see him forever. I love him. My other brothers trashed me. They, they sold me off into prison. They threw me in a pit. My own flesh and blood, they didn't even love me. And I got thrown in a prison. I got sold as a slave. And now all of a sudden I'm getting thrown back in another prison. If anybody had a, a, a human right to say, forget this, man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get what I can get. Potiphar, you want me? You got me. 
I can take the money and skim some money out of Potiphar's house and put it in underneath a rock somewhere because my life has been trashed. I deserve some happiness in my life. It was Joseph. And yet Joseph didn't do it. He goes, you know what, Lord? It's not about me. That's the whole thing about Joseph. That's the whole thing about Joseph. Do you remember Joseph's one of the most awesome words that Joseph had at the very end of his life? When his brothers came in and he was the second most powerful man in, in the whole known world. Pharaoh's second-hand man. He could have gone back to Potiphar's wife and said, hang her. She would have been dead. Do you think that she was a pretty upstanding citizen from that day forward? I think so. Because she knew that the man that I falsely accused of rape is now the man who can actually have my own life in his hands. And yet, did Joseph take retribution? No, he didn't. He saw God's hand in the midst of it all. And when his brothers came back, he treated them spitefully to see if they have been, to, to, to prove them, have you grown? Or are you guys still the, the conniving, sinister brothers that I had before? Are you going to lie to me? Are you going to treat me bad? Are you going to treat your younger brother bad? Are you going to treat another brother bad? Are you going to do with him what you did with me? And they didn't. They learned their lesson. He saw it. And when he revealed himself to his brothers... They freaked out. They're going, oh man, he's going to kill me. He said, I'm not going to kill you. Do you remember what he said? He said, who knows? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. To save us and our family alive this day. What you thought you were doing to me, evil, and the life that I had to endure. How many times do you think that Joseph was in prison, in a hot dungeon, sitting there going, what did I do to deserve this? I've just followed the Lord. I've just followed God. Why am I here? And why are my brothers free? Why, why does everybody else have so much and I don't have? And yet, he, he, we have no record of Joseph going in and having that kind of a pity party. What we see is that Joseph gets thrown in prison and he becomes the second most powerful man in the prison. Everybody listens to Joseph. He was the Tim Tebow. Of, 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 you know, the days back in that day. You know, everybody loved the guy that he was around. I know a lot of people don't like Tim Tebow. But it's because they don't like goodness. The guy just likes people. He likes to help people. He likes to minister to people. Oh, he's only doing it for show. I've never seen him really want to... See, I've never seen that, that, that done that way. He just wants to minister to people. He wants to love on people. And he gets trashed down for it. I, I, he's kind of like the Joseph... Modern day Joseph. Here Joseph is in prison. He doesn't, he doesn't lash out. When the opportunity comes, he doesn't lash out. It shows the character of the man. It shows the character of a person that says, you know what, my life is no longer mine, it's God's. What you meant for evil, God meant for good to save us alive this day. I didn't see it at first, but man, it is so clear right now. Do you understand? We would have died in, with starvation. Our dad, you guys, my little brother Benny, we all would have died. All of our families would have died if God wouldn't allow this to happen. But now I'm the, most second, I'm the second most powerful man in the whole known world. And it's because you guys sold me into slavery. I'm not going to hold that against you guys. What you meant for evil, you've learned a lesson, but God turned it around and made it good. What an attitude that we ought to have. So understand the temptations that come your way, the temptations that come my way, we've got to recognize it's not about what we think we might deserve in this life. We've got to come, and I'm going to finish with this. Here's the thing. 
It comes down to the idea that have you surrendered your life to the Lord? Have you, surre- have you entered into a relationship with Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? And I'm talking to every single one of us in this room. You might have been coming to this church for 20 years. And, and you've, you've lived on this idea that it's relationship. I said the prayer. If that's you, you're mistaken. That's not what's preached from this pulpit. Relationship, I hope you hear, is preached from this pulpit. It's relationship with God. It's a covenant that you make with God. If you would never cheat on your spouse, if you would cheat on your spouse, well, shame on you. I always find it funny that the person who cheats on their spouse is oftentimes the one that's most jealous over, you know, uh, a wife, you know, uh, giving any kind of attention to another man, just speaking to another man and the husband gets in his rage, jealous, uh, jealousy. And you go, what is the hypocrisy here? You're cheating on your wife and you're mad because she even says hi to another man because he said hi to her? You hypocrite. What are you? You're a self-serving individual and you have not yet understood that your life is not your own. You've not surrendered your life to the Lord. You have surrendered your life to you. It's about you and you only. And, and you know what? That's not the person that God's... That's, that's not the person that's going to heaven. It's not the person who's living for self. It's a person who has a relationship where life for themselves was extinguished and you've lit your unity candle with the Lord. And from this day forward, doesn't mean that you're not going to fall, doesn't mean that you're not going to slip. Now, please don't hear me say, if you slip, if you fall, if you blow it in, in life, that that's it. Even if you've blown it on a wife or a husband where you've cheated on them and something has gone down so tragic in your marriage, God is still beyond that. He's still above all of that sin and He can restore if you allow it. If you come before Him, Honestly and openly and, and humbly and, and with, forget, with, with repentance and confession and you come before a holy God, that's what He is asking for. Come, let us reason, says the Lord. Though your sins were as scarlet, yet they shall be white as snow. Come. This is the only time in Scripture that, G, that God is saying, come and let us discuss this thing, man. Let's discuss your sin. I love you so much that I'll wipe your sin away if you just come to me and reason with me and talk with me. I will forgive your sin. I'll remember your sin no more. As far as east is from the west, so far will I cast your sin from you. That's God towards you. And that's relationship. You blow it, run to the Lord. Seek repentance. Seek forgiveness. Confess. Call sin what God calls sin. Don't live in sin. Don't live in sin. Don't live in sin. Live for the Lord. Relationship. For you, if you are His, you are burning in unity with Him. And if you are not, you're still real, and, and you still have just your own candle burning, know this. The days of your life are ticking. And if today... Your life were to be over. I just saw that the, the manager for the Backstreet Boys in NSYNC. I uh, can't remember his name. He just died in prison yesterday. saw that one of the guitarists from Three Doors Down, he died yesterday, 38 years old. 
You think that when that 38-year-old guy woke up that morning, he thought he was going to die that night? Here's the thing. That's us. We're not guaranteed the next day. And so as long as your own candle is burning, you're playing a game of eternal Russian roulette with your own life. You continue to hold your candle and you're hoping and praying that God does not come back today. That you're praying and hoping that God will not make good on His promises. You're hoping and praying that that one guy that said, if you say this prayer, you'll be, you've got, you're, you're good. You're good for the rest of life. But somewhere along the line, I've made sense to you today. Somewhere along the line, I've made sense with this illustration of a marriage. God created marriage. You just have to go back and look at Ephesians chapter 5 and see that the whole idea between marriage, the whole purpose of marriage, this is the mystery of marriage, is to show the husband head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. But Jesus doesn't beat us down. He doesn't dictate. He doesn't treat us like trash. He doesn't treat us. He doesn't push us under his, uh, under his feet. He doesn't, he doesn't go, do this because I said so, not because, I, because I'm doing it. I can do it, but not you. He, he doesn't rule or lord things over anyone. The Lord is the Lord. And when he calls us to do something, he calls us to do something because he's passionately in love with us and he sees that it's the best for us. And as a husband, we have got to look at our wives that way and say, you know what? Here it is. I'm to be like Christ to the church. That's the mystery. Marriage is a mystery for that purpose, to show us God's plan, to show us God's plan in this life. I know that some of you are skeptical right here. But I want, to, I, want you to, I want you to hear this. Here it is, Ephesians chapter 5. For we are members, verse 30, for we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. This is... The purpose of marriage is to show the world what it means to be a follower of Christ. Does that, is, is that making a connection here? The whole purpose of marriage is to teach the world how a relationship between a person, a man or a woman, and Christ is to be. And if you think that you can cheat on your spouse and have a good relationship, you are sorely mistaken and you don't live in this world. You, you, you don't have a, a, a good understanding of what this world is. Of what God's plan is. Maybe you think, well, we live in an open relationship. You know how long open relationships last? Not very. <laughs> because someone's going to get jealous. Because God hasn't designed us to just be able to, to, to join ourselves with any other person. It doesn't work. Open marriages end. The purpose of a husband, a man leaving his, his father and mother and being joined to his wife and the two becoming one flesh is a mystery speaking of Christ in the church so that the world would look upon you and I in our marriage and say, okay, that's how Christ treats the church. 
This is how a husband is to treat his wife. This is how a, a, a wife is to treat her husband. This is how the church is to treat Christ. It's a proof text. So here's the thing, guys. Our relationship with the Lord is to be just that relationship. Are you unified with the Lord or are you still holding your own candle? Is your own candle still burning? If it is, I would ask today that you, you, you stop burning your own candle because that candle is going to go out one day. And if it's not lit with the unity candle of the Lord, which will never go out, you have no one to blame but yourself because even this day you have been warned. Even this day you have been spoken to of what the Word of God says. And so, Lord, I pray right now, Lord, for my brothers and sisters in this room. Lord, I know it's late. The time is, time is late and we need to get going. But Lord, I pray if there's anybody in this room right, right now that their candle's still burning. I mean, they may, may have been what they think is a Christian for many years, but they're living for themselves. Their candle's burning. God, I pray right now that they just simply offer themselves to you right now and, just, and, and, and be honest with you. I think it's one of the funniest things when, when I or any of us try to hide something from you. How silly. What can we ever hide from you, God? You see everything. You know everything. You know our intent of our thoughts. You know our heart. You know our minds. And if truth be told, Lord, we're, that should frighten most of us. If we know that you know everything about what we think, what we do, what we dwell upon, what we secretly hope for in life that may not be of your of you lord for us in this room that are wanting to completely and totally live for you lord right now i pray god that you would transform our mind renew our mind change us lord make our minds and and help us to to, to fashion and form our minds, Lord, and our hearts in such a way that, that, Lord, sin would not have dominion over us, but you, you would. Lord, help us to see our relationship with you as a marriage and not simply an insurance policy because, Lord, I would never want to be married to an insurance policy. I would never want to be married to Lynette if she said, I do, and that was the last time I saw her, except for maybe a holiday here and there except for maybe every once in a while when she chooses to come home and say, hey, how you doing? Still alive? Still everything? Okay, we're still married, right? I wouldn't want to be in that kind of a relationship. Lord, help us not to live in that kind of a relationship with you. And when we do slip and we fall, we walk away from you. Lord, bring us back to you quick. Help us to recognize the error of our ways. Help us to recognize our weaknesses and our failures. And Lord, help us to know that when we are tempted, Lord, you have shown, you've, you've already created a way of escape. Help us, Lord, to know that you're supervising everything that comes into our path. And so that we can never look at our own life and go, it's just not fair. It's just not fair. If only God cared about me, he wouldn't let me go through such things. No, Lord, that doesn't make sense. Because if I've really, truly surrendered my life to you, then, Lord, you're going through these things with me. And you have a path to get me through this. Now show me the steps. Show me the way. 
Help me to navigate this this game we call life. But it's not a game where we stick another quarter in and, and restart the game. This game of life, we've got one opportunity, one chance. Help us to make the most of it. Lord, if there's anyone living in their own light, burning their own candle, and they're far away from you, Lord, I pray that right now that they would honestly and openly come before you and say, Lord, I don't want to do this anymore. I, I want to I burn my candle with you. I want to extinguish my candle. And I want my candle, I want my fire to be burning on your candle. I want to be unified with you. I want to be joined to you. Never to ignite my candle ever again. Lord, help me. I'm sorry, Lord, for walking away from me. I'm sorry for living my own life. I'm sorry for burning my own candle. Help me to understand what Paul understood. He, he, he grasped it. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Help me to grasp that, Lord. Help me to grasp what that means. Help me to know how to live that life. I pray, God, for every individual who's listening to this message, Lord, that you would ignite their life in you. Extinguish them. Ignite their light in you and their life in you. And, Lord, let them see what true relationship really, really looks like when they start following you in that manner. So, Lord, I lift that to you. Pray, God, if there's anybody in this room that doesn't have a relationship with you, that they just come to you openly and honestly. You say a bruised reed you will not break. A smoldering flask you will not snuff out. There's some of us that are broken reeds right now. There's some of us that are smoldering flax. The fire has gone down and we're simply having a, a smoldering wick. We have a little smoke coming out of our candle. And yet we're still not ignited together with you. Lord, take that little bit that I still have left and join me together with you. And Lord, ignite me and give me life. Give me true, true life. Give me purpose. Show me your way. Show me your path. Give me an eternal life. Thank you, God, for loving me so much that you would become a man and die for me on a cross and wait, wake up three days later and rise again from the dead and live among us for a season and then rise into heaven where you now sit at the right hand of the Father where you're making intercession for us to one day come back in the clouds to take us home and another day to come and stick your feet down upon the Mount of Olives in such a thunderous entrance. Lord, help us to see your offer of life and help us to grasp onto it. Thank you, Lord, for true purpose for relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for listening. So, did Jesus cause a change in you today? Or do you need prayer? We'd love to hear from you. Please contact us by visiting our website at calvarychapelcf.com or call our office at 941-926-3717. That's 941-926-3717. Again, thanks for listening to In the Word with Pastor Don.